Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. My guest today is Erki Hotomo, media archaeologist, historian, and professor at UCLA. We discuss how the past and present media technology are connected. I recommend that you get his book, Illusions in Motion, Media Archaeology of the Moving Panorama and Related Spectacles. Also, I heard him speak about VR at the Transforming Hollywood event. You should check it out next year. Listen to some thought leaders in the entertainment industry. Theodore Brown was a British inventor from the early part of the 20th century. He, um, around 1908, he came up with an interesting idea for a new kind of a media machine. So his idea was to take movies and um, record them in spiral form, uh, in um, sort of like microscopic format on um, flexible uh, movie discs. And uh, he imagined a device which would be kind of what I call proto-interactive device, which means you could basically scan those discs back and forth with a hand crank, you could stop at single frames, and so on and so on. And actually he sold this idea to a film pioneer named Charles Urban, actually a pretty famous person. And Urban started developing that into a device that he believed would revolutionize everything. He imagined that that this is a prototype for a culture of the moving pictures after the cinema, the kind of standard format that was forming around the movie theater at the same time. His device could be uh, more portable, it was battery operated, could be taken to the countryside, it could be could be used in the homes, in uh, hospitals, at schools, and and he imagined even a huge sort of like multimedia library being created around that. So he was like, like, we could say he was thinking big, and the whole thing collapsed. It didn't work out at all. The device was forgotten, the discs and the movies disappeared, so we had one of these cases where somebody had a wonderful, ambitious idea and everything went just spectacularly kind of failed. And media archaeology thinks that this kind of spectacular failures are really interesting. So they should not be just cut out from this sort of like collective memory of media culture. But we should actually integrate those ideas back into that story and also look at them. Look at them with appreciation, but at the same time with sort of like kind of wonderment. So why did this thing not work out? What went wrong? And I think that these are really interesting questions from a sort of like a media archaeological point of view. So you're kind of like a time-traveling detective. I like to see media archaeology as a kind of a time machine, actually. So that's a good comment. So media archaeologist is is not like a traditional historian who, who just goes to a certain, let's say, period back in the past and builds a vision, you know, about things uh, like forming some kind of a cultural evolution in a, in a, within a limited time frame. So media archaeologists are interested in looking at these different stages in time, in a way traveling from one moment to another, 
trying to look at these links and connections and also separations and similarities between those moments in time. And in uh, media culture, this probably happens at least within 500 years. So my research normally starts from about so like a 16th century and, uh, and reaches all the way up to the present. And typically we hear that history is written by the winners. Normal way to think about history is to see it as the story of, of, of winners. So that means those inventions and gadgets that uh, took effect, that um, built huge industries and uh, sort of like kind of audiences around them. And that is part of the story. Um, we haven't, you cannot deny that. So it's it's important to sort of like give those inventors from Thomas Edison and, and uh, Marconi or whoever we could list here, maybe Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. I mean, they deserve to be part of that history. But but that is not the only thing that matters in history. So that's the sort of like media archaeological point that we try to make. So this and those things can be equally and sometimes even more interesting than these stories of the winners that standard box and watch from the History Channel and that kind of things. So Henry Ford, you know, that's a typical topic for History Channel documentary as an American hero. People who founded General Motors in the history of the automobile, for example. There were many amazing and interesting and strange ideas, and I think that those are also part of that story. One thing when we look at technology evolving, it sometimes goes in directions that the initial inventors could never have predicted. You just look at the cell phone, and you can literally create content, distribute it to millions of people, and consume pretty much any forms of media available at the palm of your hand. What are your thoughts and idea of technology occasionally taking these right turns? There's a very important way of thinking about this that I many years ago learned from the British um, communication scholar Raymond Williams. Uh, he's, he's dead a long time ago. But so he had this idea about technology and cultural form. So he basically tried to say that on the one hand we have something which is sort of like technological development, you know. You have technology for television, for example. But that technology is not all there is. So it really uh, becomes something when it turns into cultural form. So cultural form is that sort of like range of uses and ideas and applications that are imposed in a way by the social context on that technology. For example, according to his idea, the television technology from the late 19th century, which more normally wasn't functional until the 1920s, didn't dictate as itself what the television would be. Maybe it gave some guidelines. Obviously, this was a system for real-time sort of like transmission of images and sounds at the distance, so that's clear. But that doesn't still dictate why broadcasting television for such a long time became the sort of like standard 
application for that technology. This is where the sort of like social and cultural and ideological and economic factors come into play. So we know that pretty early on television technology was used for surveillance in factories for example, in the 1930s. And, and there were applications early on that actually were developing this idea about the picture phone that we now find in like FaceTime applications on these mobile phones. So this just basically means to say that there were many different ideas what that technology could be used for. Currently, VR seems to be filling on its promise of the experience that you know you didn't get with all the different devices that we had years ago. For me, actually, uh, the... Um, first wave of VR in the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s was one of the um, original inspirations for media archaeology. So that's basically when my research uh, began. So I was working at that point as an exhibition curator. Uh, so on the field of like computer art, interactive art. So they were also seen as a kind of a new frontier at the time. So I both curated exhibitions and I produced quite a few early artworks, including telematic works and performances for artists like Paul Sermon, who's considered to be one of the founders of this kind of like online, multi-directional, real-time pieces. Pieces like telematic dreaming and telematic vision, telematic seance. I, I was involved in producing those works. And I uh, encountered uh, VR at conferences like SIGGRAPH uh, and um, Ars Electronica at that time. And like most others, I was pretty amazed, you know. So there was this certain kind of moment of surprise in the beginning. So I still remember my very first trip in virtual reality using a pretty kind of low resolution and, and slow system from the VPL research, so head-mounted display and um, data glove. And, um, and so I, I could kind of understand why people started talking about ontological rupture or sort of like move to a completely new kind of a frontier zone, you know, so no more physical frontier, but there's some, like some, some other kind of a dimension, that kind of things. I remember kind of getting lost uh, from that um, VR room, with which I was exploring somewhere through the wall, and I didn't know where I was. And I was asking, what is the nature of this space? What is, is this a new form of being in the world? And these were the kind of questions that others were asking too, and um, in many, many different ways. So, but very soon I actually uh, became kind of like a skeptical of that. So I uh, started asking these questions, whether this is really so unique, is this idea about total immersion really a kind of rupturing culture that will lead us to certain kind of change the kind of whole ontology of being. And um, uh, then I started seeing that really that is not the case. I mean, we find many examples in culture uh, from many centuries where the idea about the total immersion has already uh, appeared, sometimes linked with psychological factors, even reading, but, but also linked with um, earlier technological prosthesis, like, for example, Victorian madness for uh, stereoscopic pictures and the 19th century so-called panoramania. So not only the uh, technologically, but in terms of the sort of like discussions that those created at the time, I found that there were many parallels between the ways people addressed virtual reality in the beginning. Now, 
it was clear that it actually could not really win, at least at that point, so the early 90s. And I think that the main reasons are very simple. So obviously this was extremely clunky technology. So it was strictly wired. You had very limited sort of like range of motion and you always needed some, some helper standing behind your back. And, and then the worlds were very limited. So there was no texture mapping or anything, really a significant time lag and that kind of thing. Those were sort of like basic factors. And I think that there was also this idea about certain kind of skepticism that that came as a kind of backlash, you know, after that initial enthusiasm for those all those wild promises that what that technology could deliver. So I guess that the interesting question to ask right now is really whether this situation with the new maybe the second wave of totally immersive VR that we are experiencing right now, whether that is really free of those limitations and uh, whether it will avoid similar kind of a backlash that was, was experienced in the early 90s. And I don't think I have an absolutely clear answer to that. So I, like most of us, I'm I'm observing and I'm trying those systems and trying to figure that out. What do you think is the best case scenario for VR? I think the VR always has a certain limitation, which is of course the fact that uh, when we talk about immersive experiences, you have basically two options. One option is a sort of like data suit-like situation, like like we see with uh, Oculus and, and all those comp- competing head-mounted displays again. So if you really want to sort of like a totally immersive experience that's probably the way uh, the other option is of course some forms of audience-based vr so and that that is a long history that comes from panoramas in the 19th century uh, you can th- we can think about the cinerama movies in the in the 1950s and and many other such cases where uh, and um, something called the cave uh, interface which was developed in the early 1990s so you see your body and you still sort of like get the feeling of being surrounded by something so if you want to sort of like exclude your body or at least this physical body so then it seems like those helmets are the other way to go but the helmet has always limitations and and it is probably partly linked even with the same kind of factors that partly explain the failure of the Google Glass. It, it, is, that it is actually uncomfortable to fare. I mean, we see that if you look at the kind of the HoloLens, um, HoloLens helmet that, that Microsoft is now trying to promote and things, they are pretty cool looking th- things and they are certainly more comfortable, more easy to use than those ones in the early 90s. There's a much less need for calibration that that was a major part of that experience in the early 90s so you had to actually spend quite a bit of time to sort of like even to put you into that situation where you could start exploring the world and you need you normally a helper i think that there are these aspects are have been cut away to a certain extent and of course everybody who tries those new worlds immediately sees you know that 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 technically those worlds are on a very different level i personally think that uh, and this is not an original observation at all that this maybe this uh, vr video world is the one that carry further than um, totally synthetic computer generated worlds so i think that 
if you look at the people's comments about this new wave of VR, so like let's say on YouTube or just at conferences you attend, I think that more more people are sort of like thrilled about the po- possibility of inhabiting a basically a video-generated world rather than a traditional 3D graphics world. And yeah, so I, I do think that maybe this works, but still the problem is that that um, it's uh, we cannot really imagine any sort of mass audience spaces for is- experiencing these things. It is still sort of like kind of a one-to-one thing. So I guess the point is really that are those companies going to sell these experiences as a new line of hardware, new line of experiences for the home user? And I'm not totally convinced about that. Isn't it funny how vinyl, which is a retro technology, is having this huge resurgence now? Kind of fascinating that it was completely against the very clean, simple Spotify and all these streaming services, is that you're literally having it take up space. It seems to be some kind of a funny reaction that, to those values that much of this uh, millennial generation is sharing. So the idea that uh, originally maybe because you couldn't afford those things, so you wouldn't actually buy buy many things. Instead of buying or owning things, you will be downloading things for a while and renting a car for a few hours, you know, and you know, that kind of, you know, all these things that we see happening. And it is kind of curious to, to, for me as well that vinyl has come back in such a such a big way. There was a time when you couldn't actually buy a turntable for a number of years. It was very difficult to find one. And uh, I guess that it certainly has to do with this kind of funny feeling that vinyl is still an affordable commodity. And, and amazingly, it is a sign of the fact that even this millennial generation, you know, needs to sort of like have something tangible. But but it's not only that, because I think that this is related with the hip factor that's, uh, that was mediated by the recycling of the uh, vinyl by DJs and, and hip hop artists and things like that. So it's not like you have um, just a sort of like um, obsolete form of like sound distribution and then that is getting all of a sudden rediscovered. It is mediated by other uses that took in place. So in that sense, this is kind of, if we think about technoculture in, in general as a kind of mediating factor. So it, it sort of like plays a role in that idea. Are there any other retro technologies connected to media that have been adopted? I'm not sure if I can come up with immediate example, but um, obviously media culture always has this kind of retro element, certain forms of technology like portable radio sets or ghetto blasters and that kind of stuff, you know, reintroduced as part of that, you know. I'm not sure if we have seen uh, anything on this scale actually. So I think that this is quite significant and actually relatively difficult to predict vinyl revival has to do with the sort of like massiveness of this sort of like online music culture these days. So the fact that it, it, it got such incredible dimensions you know Spotify stuff all those different forms like from iTunes and whatever and it's possibly sign of the certain basic conservative quality of this uh, millennial generation in some sense these people grew up in the world of depression and a world where there were lesser resources you know than than let's say like the 1980s yuppies and people like that so these were the people who didn't have much so they had to build their identity on things that they could fairly affordably kind of swap with each other online and 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 chatting and all these sort of like new cultural forms took place partly phase of some aspects of consumption 
not all our aspects of course because i mean that knowledge of consumption naturally sort of like spreads widely on online and, and and leads to purchases you know that those things don't disappear anywhere but at the same time i think that this vinyl revival has to do with the fact that there's a certain kind of funny conservative need after all to own something tangible that even though it takes space look at those record covers and maybe start collecting putting a collection together it's a fashion but it is also uh, i think a sign a kind of pointer to some deeper needs that obviously this online sort of like immaterial online world doesn't completely satisfy pour my tea pour my thoughts into separate beds spilling out in the clouds whirling like a pirouette thanks for listening to another episode of hollywood 2.0 You could contact me on Twitter at PeterCats1.